Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Yeah. But in any case, so I was thinking about what I would share, and those were thoughts that were coming to my mind. But if you look at Isaiah chapter 9, this is a fabulous passage about the coming of Messiah. For it says in verse 6, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So let me just share with you some things about this passage. First of all, this is a passage about the Messiah of Israel, the child that would be born, the son that would be given. And so about 200 years or so before the time of Messiah, as I've shared before, The translation of the Hebrew scriptures was made into Aramaic and also later into Greek. Now, the scriptures were translated into Aramaic because around 600 years before the time of Messiah, the Jewish people were taken into the Babylonian captivity, and the Babylonians spoke Aramaic. And so when the Jewish people were brought into Babylon, they began then to translate the scriptures into a context in which the people would be reading it because they were in exile for over 70 years. So there was a text that was put together, these targums, these paraphrases uh, in Aramaic that were read in the synagogues so that the individuals would hear the word of God and understand it. Today in the United States, we read from the Torah scroll, we read the Hebrew, and most Jewish people don't understand what's being read. And I'm not really sure these days if a translation is provided. Robin, when you're in the synagogue and they read from the Torah scroll, do they translate it as well or they just read the Torah scroll portion and then begin to teach on it? That, that occur with it. Well, I remember when I was growing up and I'd be in the service, they would read the, the portion from the Torah and then the rabbi would come up and speak. And they never really translated what was read. Now, in Israel, there's not a problem. You know, they understand the language. So when they read from the Torah scroll, they understand what's being read as well. So when Jewish people were scattered over the, over the world, you know, the scriptures were being translated into the languages that they were speaking. 
So in the ancient world, Jewish people were, at a given point in time, speaking more Aramaic than they were Hebrew. So in the synagogues that were created, they would read the scripture in Aramaic. And oftentimes, these Aramaic translations were not literal word-for-word translations, but paraphrases that would give the sense or the meaning that the rabbis understood the passage to convey. So this is a copy of an English translation of the Aramaic Targum. And in Isaiah 9.6, it's really fascinating to read how they translated it or how they paraphrased it. So they, in Isaiah 9.6, it says, The prophet said to the house of David, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he has taken the law upon himself to keep it. His name is called from eternity, Wonderful, the Mighty God who lived to eternity, the Messiah, whose peace shall be great upon us in his days. So what does this tell us? This tells us that the rabbis understood, at least the most ancient rabbis, understood this passage to refer to the Messiah of Israel. Now, if it refers to the Messiah of Israel, and you look at this passage, this is quite extraordinary. So let me take you through a couple of things. First of all, in chapter 9, it fits within a section of Isaiah from chapter 7 through 12. So when Isaiah verse six, chapter 9, verse 6 tells us a child is born, the question is, what child is he talking about? Has he spoken about the birth of a child previously? So if we go back to chapter 7, we're told that the virgin shall conceive and bear a child and shall call his name Emmanuel. So now we know that in Isaiah 9, 6, when we're told that a child would be born, the child he's already spoken of is introduced to us in Isaiah chapter 7. And the child introduced to us in Isaiah chapter 7 has a miraculous birth. And the child comes not just from anyone, but from the virgin. It's very specific in the Hebrew, ha'alma, the virgin, will give birth to a child and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Now, when we get to chapter 8, we're told that there will be a time of judgment that will hit Israel. A time, and he speaks, the Isaiah speaks in two directions. In the near future, he speaks of the Assyrians. So look at chapter 8 of Isaiah's book, and you look at the first verse, and he tells us that, then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet, write on it. You look at verse 3, and I, and I went to the prophetess, she conceived and bare a child. And then you come down into um, verse 4, and she says, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So Isaiah now sees a time when there's going to be judgment on the land. It will affect Assyria uh, or it will affect Samaria. And then he tells us that it will come all the way down into Israel. Verse 5, the Lord spoke to me again because the people has refused the waters of Shiloh and that flow gently and rejoice over Racin and the son of Ramaliah. Therefore, behold... The Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, speaking the waters of the river of Euphrates, where the Assyrians are located. So he's now saying the Assyrians are going to rise in power and descend onto Samaria, descend on 
Assyria descend on the land of Israel. So that he then tells us, if you look at verse eight and or verse eight and nine, he tells us that the Assyrians will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on and reach even to the neck. In other words, the life of Israel will appear to come to an end. He's reaching for the neck like to strangle, to kill the, the person, in this case, to kill the nation of Israel. They'll be on the edge of destruction. And look what we're told. And, uh, and it will pass and reach even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, Emmanuel. So now we know that the land of Israel is the land of the one that was spoken of being born in chapter 7. This is Emmanuel's land. God with us is land. And so the land of Israel will be swarmed over by the Assyrians. But then when you get to verse 9, he says, Be broken, you peoples. Be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Though you attempt to withstand them and to fight against them, he's saying you will, you will experience defeat and destruction. Verse 10, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand because of Emmanuel. So now what he's telling us is that the Assyrians will descend on the land of Israel They will come to that point of almost destroying the land, but in that final hour, the Lord will stand up for his people. Their attempts to defeat Israel ultimately will not stand. There will be great destruction, but it will not be ultimate. And the reason is because Emmanuel will defend them. Now, in most of our translations, you see there's the word or name Emmanuel is translated. In other words, my translation says, it will not stand for God is with us. But that's a bad way to translate this because God with us is the name Emmanuel. So really what Isaiah is saying is that Emmanuel will be born in a miraculous way. Can't get into it all in chapter 7, but that's what he's telling us in chapter 7. In chapter 8, he's telling us the Assyrians will come against Emmanuel's land. They will almost be victorious in destroying Israel, but at that final hour where they're grabbing for the neck, Emmanuel will keep them from utterly destroying Israel. Nevertheless, it's a dark time, and it looks forward to a darker time, so that when you turn to chapter 9, chapter 9 begins with, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's the area around the Sea of Galilee, the northern part of Israel from which uh, or to which the Assyrians would first attack because they're further north. So he's saying there was a time of great gloom. But then he says, but in the latter time, in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the Sea of Galilee, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Then if you come to verse 2, he says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And so in the midst of a future dark time, a great light will appear. And what is that light that will appear? Well, look at verse 6. The child spoken of in chapter 7, who is Emmanuel, who will defend Israel or has defended Israel in the past, will be a great light for Israel in the future. And this child, 
that will be born, will na- we now are told, will be a son that will be given. And now the question is, given for what purpose? Given, he tells us, to reign over the house of David. We'll see that in a moment. But also given, as we learn further in the book of Isaiah, to give his life that Israel's sin might be dealt with. So he's a child born so as to reign, but a son that is given so that Israel's sins would be dealt with. That's what this passage is talking about. Now, the child has to be born because if he's going to reign over the house of David, he must be the son of David. So he must be born. And if this son of David is going to reign over the house of David and yet provide for the sin of Israel, this child must be given so as to give his life as a ransom for Israel. Now, that's not all said here, but Isaiah will expand on that as we go further into his book. But what I want you to see is in verse 6, he tells us the name. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, the kingdom of David, shall be upon his shoulder. How do I know that? Because look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there'll be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. So the government he's talking about is the throne and kingdom of David. Everybody's with me? But now look at this, the name of the son now, and the child that is born. For some reason, it just dawned on me for the first time this morning as I was rereading the passage. And you notice that he has four names, right? Wonderful Counselor, and each of the names is a pair. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. But notice, it doesn't say, and his names shall be. He says, his name shall be. So the thought that came immediately to my mind is when Yeshua commits his, commissions his disciples at the end of his life, tells them to go into all the world and make disciples and to immerse them in the name, singular, not plural, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when we read about the name, it doesn't just mean that which we will, uh, that word that we will use to sort of delineate a particular individual. You know, these names are really character, characteristics of the nature of the one who bears the name. So in the Hebrew scriptures, that is oftentimes the case. The name reflects something of the character or the desired uh, character the parents may have for the child. So when I was named Gary, and if you were to ask my parents, why did they name me Gary? Is it like some significant name, you know, like giant man, you know? Does it mean something like that? I say that because I think I mentioned when I've spoken on the radio one of the earliest times, someone came and visited and said, uh, hey, I heard you on the radio. You sound taller than you are, you know, which made me think I need to be on the radio more often, you know? <laughs> So when my parents, or my mother particularly, named me Gary, she named me Gary because she was in love with Gary Cooper. And she was hoping I might be as tall as him, (laughs) maybe as famous or as handsome as him. And none of it came to pass. 
But what this Hebrew scriptures do is they name their children differently. So when God names, I guess we could say, names Adam, Adam, ground, he created them out of the dust of the earth. So when we speak about humanity, we're talking about dust ones. We are dust ones, ones made out of the dirt, out of the ground. When God names Abraham, Avraham, he names him father of many nations that God would make out of him. That was what God, his name was going to express his character. When the parents of Yitzhak name him Yitzhak, laughter, it reminded them every time they called him, every time they saw him, how they doubted God and laughed when he said, this time next year in Genesis 18, you will have a son in your old age. And they laughed. That's not possible. But at 100 and at 90, they were mom and dad. <laughs> you know, For almost the first time, Abraham had Ishmael before, but for the most part, Mommy and daddy at 190. And so whenever they would call Yitzhak, they actually found God laughing at them, who had the last laugh, you know. Or Jacob, when God renames Jacob, he that acts on the heel. You remember when he was born, he grabbed the hold of Esau's heel, desiring to be the firstborn so as to have the right of primogeniture and have the patriarchal blessing. But he wasn't born first. But when he wrestled with God at Peniel, the face of God, he named the place because he fought with God. And he said, I'll now name this place the face of God. God renames him Yisrael, a prince with God, because he fought with God. And this is utterly incredible to think of. And he prevailed against God so as to receive the blessing that he wanted. Remember, he held on to Esau, wanting that blessing. Well, he was holding on to the angel of the Lord until the Lord blessed him. And the angel of the Lord blessed him for his commitment, his diligence, let's say his passion for God and for God's things, namely his blessing. So these names, you know, Joshua, God is salvation, would bring salvation to Israel, and Messiah would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So when we read here, and his name singular shall be called, you know, Pele Yoetz, Wonderful counselor. This is very critical stuff here because, and why the Targum said Messiah, is because these words, or at least this word, Pele, in all of the scripture is only used of God. It's never used in the scripture of anyone else. There are certain words that are only used of God. For example, the yod He vav He, the sacred name of God, Jehovah or Yahweh, or however you want to pronounce the unpronounceable name of God, is only used of God, never used of anyone else except for God. But check out Jeremiah 23, verse 6, and you will see the Messiah, the, Messiah, the son of David, is the only other one that has the sacred name of God given as his name. The word Pele, wonderful, is a word that speaks of the miraculous workings of God. And it is only used of God throughout all of the Old Testament. 
never used of an individual who is other than God. Here he's called the wonderful counselor. And it reminds me of what Yeshua said that after his death, he would send the parakletos, the one who comes alongside, who would be our counselor. But the word counselor is not like a psychologist or a psychiatrist, as valuable as they are. The word counselor really means an advocate, a legal advocate that pleads our case. And what's the case that we need pleaded? We need the case pleaded against God's wrath because we're all in danger of it. And our Messiah would be the wonderful advocate, the miraculous advocate that would advocate our cause before the Father so that we would not be held accountable for our sin. He would be a miraculous advocate because he would enable us to withstand or to have the wrath of God bypassed. That's what he's telling us here. And in fact, by the way, all of these names, when Isaiah uses them in other places, all of these words, he uses them for God. And I can show you some of those passages in a moment. But on the one hand, he is our wonderful, miraculous advocate that enables us to stand before the Father. He's not only Peleoetz, he is El Gibor, the mighty God. I mean, there's just no way to get around the fact that this is a reference that is referring to God, you know. And I remember speaking in one of these cults, you know, where they want to make Messiah less than God. And you look at a passage like this and you see that God is referred to as the mighty God. Is there like a almighty God and a mighty God and a second mighty God. I mean, you know, it's sort of like he's referred to as the first and the last, not the first and the second to last or just after first or something. You know, he's the first and the last, the beginning of the end. He's the mighty God. And this phrase, El Gibor, Isaiah uses to speak about God himself. And now it is spoken of a child who would be born and a son that would be given. Not only is he spoken of as God in all of his might and power, but he's called aviad. Ad is like this word for eternal or everlasting. Micah uses it in Micah chapter 5 verse 2 where he says, O Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are smallest among all the clans of Israel, yet out of you shall he come forth who will be ruler and shepherd of my people, whose goings forth, the word goings forth means whose origins are from of old, from Ad Olam, from everlasting. Here his name is Avi Ad. Father of eternity. It means he's the one who is the creator and the cause of all of eternity. God supersedes time in all of its facets. He is the eternal one who generates eternality from his own being. And so he is eternal father. He's the one that can create and provide eternal life for you And for me. And so, this one child who would be born, who would be a son given, would be this miraculous advocate 
who could deal with our sin, for no one else could. He would be the eternal father who could enable eternality with God forever. He is the one who is El Gibor, the mighty God with all power and all strength. And he is the one who is Sar Shalom, the prince of peace. You know, this is the marvelous thing about our God. Because he's all-powerful and loving, he does not use his power indiscriminately. He uses his power purposefully for the sake of peace and harmony and joy and gladness. Can you imagine if we had one like that who is just absolutely uh, independent of these qualities of goodness and righteousness, all power in the hands of one that would just seek to control, to manipulate, to overshadow, to destroy. We have a God who has all of this at his disposal, who's desirous of creating peace, who's desirous of giving us eternal life, who is desirous of being our advocate in our greatest need, our sin. He is the one who has all might in order to give us all possibilities. And so what does he say here? He's the one who will reign on the throne of David whose kingdom, and isn't this amazing, who says who's from this time forth, when he comes forward, and forevermore. The only way he can do that is if he's the eternal king of Israel. So his name, not names, but he is all of these things rolled up into one. So what does that mean for us? So uh, Dudley over at Shepherd said, two things I want you to remember, just two things. And they remembered it. I don't know if I could be as clear, but, you know, redemption and relationship. So I want to leave you with two things to think about. One is purpose. <laughs> purpose. And what's the other one now? Let's see. Well, turn with me to First John. At the very uh, close of the New Covenant Scriptures, 1 John, looking at chapter 3. And looking at verse 23, here is your purpose, my purpose in life. This is our purpose. If this is the one who has come, the child born, the son given, what then is my purpose in all of this? And here is the clear purpose, I think, we find. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Yeshua the Messiah, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Now, what strikes me here, too, is notice, he, le- he leaves us this commandment, but he told us two things. See, I would have said he gave us these two commandments, believe in Yeshua the Messiah and love one another. But no, he says, John writes, he leaves us this one commandment. You know, it's sort of like his name shall be wonderful counsel, you know, and immerse in the name of the Father, Son. You know, you expect the plurality, and I expected it here too, but he doesn't give us the plurality. He simply says he has given us this commandment, and this commandment is to believe in his Son, which means not just to acknowledge him, but to embrace him, to trust him, 
to rely upon him. I remember years ago when I was just 17, and I remember the uh, pastor, whoever was up there talking about having a relationship with the Lord, and he was talking about what does it mean to believe? And he went into in James and says, you know, the demons believe and they tremble. So belief is not just a casual acknowledgement that something is true, even though it is true, because the demons know it's true, but they tremble. That's not the kind of belief John is talking about. And you remember in his gospel at the end, he says, these things are written that you might believe Yeshua is the Messiah and have life in his name. So here he's telling us, The commandment, the commandment. Here's another interesting thing to think about. Whenever we have individuals talk about inviting the Lord into your life, right? We say the Lord is inviting you. But yet here, John tells us, no, 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 the Lord is commanding you. You know, that gets a little more powerful, doesn't it? We don't oftentimes think of it that way. But the scripture is very clear. We are not only offered the invitation Come unto me, all you are heavy laden. But we're also commanded, believe in Yeshua, the Messiah. And so I remember this pastor said, what's it mean to believe? It means to rely on, to cling to, to trust in, you know. And that's what we need to be doing. I don't mean just at that moment to have eternal life. I mean you and I who have eternal life, we need to continue to trust in, to cling to, to rely upon, to believe in, to trust our Lord. And so the Lord is telling us, what is the ramifications of this one who has done all for us? On the one hand, it means we have a clear purpose in life. Whatever it is we do, That is, in some sense, a tributary to the purpose for which we live. In the Westminster Catechisms, you know, in the Reformed churches, the very first question is, what is the chief end of man? Which is, what is the main reason why human beings exist? To love God, to enjoy him forever. And I would just add one thing to... to, uh, uh, no, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I would just add one thing, and to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is what's wrapped up in all of that. But that means we have a clear purpose. And our purpose is to believe in him, to trust in him, and to love one another. That's our purpose in life. To love God, to believe him, to trust him, and to love one another. Everything we do is meant to be that. And the second thing I just want to leave with you, purpose, and the last thing is hope. It means we have a genuine hope. And I don't just mean hope in the life to come, but this is what I was thinking about. We're coming to New Year's, and how many of us have made New Year's resolutions that have not been realized? I can't tell you how many years I've said, I'm going to read the Bible in a year. And somewhere along the way, you sort of lose track with it. And you say, no, I'm not going to make it this year. Then the new year comes. You say, no, I'm not making that resolution because I can't do it. Or I was talking with uh, Dan Rifkin. And he was telling me when he goes to the gym, you know, he's been working out for years and so on. And um, he'll go in January. It's crowded. Everybody's in there. They made the resolution, we're working out, we're working out, I'm going to be big and strong, you know. And then by February, he said, then it's back to usual, you know. It's just, just a handful of us, you know. 
Mary Lou's gotten to the point where she said, there is no way ever, ever, ever you're getting another membership to a gym. You know, because so many months into it, I'm just not going anymore. You know, I'm too tired. I got other things, you know. How often have we made the resolution, I'm going to pray every morning or every evening, or I'm just going to be, and we fail to do it. How often have we said, resolution, I'm going to be a better parent this year. I'm going to be a better husband. I'm going to be a better wife. I'm going to be a better child, a better son, a better daughter. I'm going to be a better student. I'm going to work harder at my craft. I'm going to, and you fill in the blank. And we found ourselves failing to do that. So then when the next year comes, we say, I'm not doing that again. Well, because we have a hope, we have the freedom to fail. We have the freedom to say, you know what? I'm not going to give up on that. I am going to make that resolution to read the Bible through a year. I am going to make that resolution once again to be a better parent. I am going to make that resolution to be a better husband or a better wife or a better son or a better daughter. I'm not going to allow the failures of the past to dictate what my future accomplishments will not be. And that's because we have a hope that is real. The Lord is going to come and he's going to reign. And he always forgives us of our sin. There is no sin that you cannot bring to him and say, Lord, I am sorry again and again and again that he's going to say, you know what? You've done this how many times now? I'm not doing it anymore. I know there are some of us that do that, right? How many times am I going to have to forgive you for this? When are you going to change? When are you going to be different? And we give up on each other and we are hopeless toward others. But God is not that way for us. Think about it. It was a time of great gloominess for Israel, darkness pervading. Isn't that what he said in Isaiah chapter 9? It was in the midst of that gloom that the light had shined. And in the midst of your own particular gloom, the light of Messiah can shine very brightly. And if he doesn't, he'll forgive us and he'll allow us to come to him again and ask, might your light shine? where I am weakest, and he'll come through. In fact, John tells us this because he says, little children, chapter 4, verse 4 now, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. The one who is in you, and let me invite the worship team to come on up. The one who is in you is the one who is paleoites, the wonderful, miraculous, working advocate. The one who is in you is El Gibor, the mighty God. The one who is in you is Aviad, the eternal father, the one who is the creator of eternity for you. The one who is in you is Sar Shalom, the prince of peace. Messiah says, be anxious for nothing, right? And tells us that even before we ask, he knows what we need. He is our prince of peace. And so there is hope for each and every one of us every, every day. So we have a purpose and we have hope because the child who is to be born and the son who is to be given has been born and he has been given and we now can benefit from who he is. Let's pray.
Our God and Father, we are most grateful for your love and kindness. We are most grateful that in our darkest moments, the light of Messiah is still shining brightly within and without us. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us in recognizing the reason for which we are here, to believe in you, to trust you, and to walk in your ways by loving one another. One commandment closely connected. For if we believe and trust in you, we will love one another. And then we pray, Father, that even as we seek to fulfill this purpose, might we be infused with hope to continue to move forward even when we're most discouraged. And so we thank you, Lord, that the promised one has come and is coming again to bring about the final redemption in our lives. So we praise you, our Lord, and we give you all the glory, for we pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.